seated and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We have uh, spent many, many, many weeks getting through the first 12 chapters. We come now to 13, which is probably one of the most well-known passages of Scripture in the entirety of the Bible, simply known as the love chapter. Some have called this Paul's greatest literary work, although we know it is not a literary work. It is the inspired Word of God given to the church for its edification. Some have called this a love hymn, saying that it is the Beatitudes set to music. And in these 13 verses, we're going to find that God is very accurately described Because after all, we understand that God is love. We would read from the Apostle John in 1 John 4.16, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Love is to be the most basic Christian character... And it is often lacking in the lives of Christians and in churches as it was in the day of Corinth when Paul was writing this letter to them. The qualities of love that described in this chapter define what love is to look like in the lives of Christians. And it is often read at weddings as a reminder to the bride and to the groom of what it is that will build a healthy, long-lasting relationship But what is often lost and sometimes not even mentioned about this passage is the fact that this chapter falls right in the middle of Paul's teaching about spiritual gifts. This lengthy discussion that began in 12.1 and goes all the way through the end of 14 is sandwiched right here in this love chapter. So while these truths can be accurately applied to God and to the standard for Christian relationships, they were written to address the spiritual gift issue within the church at Corinth. So to best understand what Paul is saying in this chapter, it is imperative that we understand what Paul said prior to this, and then in the weeks ahead that we will understand what Paul has said after this. So as a very brief review, Paul is dealing with Great matters of division within the church at Corinth. We talked about the unity and diversity. There is many gifts. There are many ministries. There are many effects. Yet there is one Spirit, one Lord, and one God. What we need to be reminded of is very simply this. Differences tend to divide us. And the lack of a singular gift of tongues in the church of Corinth was a great source of division amongst them. We talked last time about interdependency, not independence, and the reality that there are many different parts within the body of Christ as there is in a human body, but there is equal value, there is equal honor, and all of these various parts are needed, and the result of the body working together is unity. This is what God desires for every church is that we would be unified in our faith in Christ to execute a ministry of shared giftedness 
to build up the church. When we begin to place a singular gift or a group of gifts over and against other gifts and other people who may or may not possess those gifts, unity will never be established. Division and and factions is what will result from that. And that is not at all what God wants. And this is what Paul is dealing with. What Paul explains in this chapter is the more excellent way of chapter 12, verse 31, which is God's plan for spiritual gift usage within the church. Paul said... I will show you a more excellent way. And this is the explanation of that more excellent way. So the way of love is more excellent than feelings of superiority or independence as expressed in the lives of some Corinthians because of the particular spiritual gifts that they possess. The way of love is more excellent than the feelings of insecurity or resentfulness because of the lack of possession of a particular spiritual gift. The way of love is more excellent because it elevates others over self and it allows unity to grow and flourish within those relationships. Now the word that we're going to see repeated over and over and over in this in this passage is the word agape. Agape consistently used in this chapter is listen to this It is one of the most rare words in all of Greek literature. It almost doesn't exist, yet it is the most common word used within the pages of the New Testament. Agape love begins with John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This agape love continues with our understanding of who this love was applied to us as well as the church in Corinth. Here's what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The beginning of agape love is Christ coming into the world to redeem it from sin. And then that agape love continues with the promises that God has made available to us to enjoy in this life and in eternity with Him. So love in this chapter will define the unique character of God's agape love and holds this description as the standard for how we are to live our lives in relationship with one another. And this is centered in the application of the usage of spiritual gifts. Now, we're not going to get very far today. We're only going to get through the first three verses. And in all reality, we probably could have stopped at verse 1 to really do justice to everything that it says, but we'll never get through it if we do it that way. So I'll do my very best to summarize this in a meaningful way 
and not shortchange our understanding or application of what these words say to us. So reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, here's what God's Word says to us. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels who do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing." So what we're going to look at here, Roman numeral 5 in our continuing outline in spiritual gifts, is the context for spiritual gifts. So right away, right out of the gate, we get a sense that Paul is doing more than just describing what love is, because after all, these first three verses are the preface to how Paul is going to describe the qualities of love that we'll look at next time. Paul is exposing to these carnal believers what true spirituality actually looks like. Now, they believed that spirituality was measured by the gifts one possessed or the gift of tongues singularly, but Paul is going to undo that rationale by defining the context and the qualities of love. He's going to begin this process by presenting three conditional sentences, each with a highly desirable spiritual gift or virtue with a terribly disappointing end result. So these powerful examples demonstrate how far away from true spirituality the Corinthians really are, and Paul uses highly exaggerated descriptions to make this point. Now it's important for us to understand that Paul is making an extreme example of how they misunderstand what spiritual gifts are and their value in the church and their assumed spiritual superiority with the possession of certain spiritual gifts. So Paul's going to begin, and number one, by describing the supremacy of love. And talking about the supremacy of love, Paul is not saying that these things he's going to mention are not important or that they are meaningless but that they find their truest fulfillment when exercised correctly in the context of love. So the first example, right out of the gate, letter A, the supremacy of love over tongues. Now Paul says in verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong, or a clanging symbol. Now, what has Paul done here? Paul has begun this explanation of the supremacy of love by highlighting what they believed to be the most prized, the most treasured, and the greatest indication of spiritual superiority, the ability to speak in tongues. Now, I'm going to deal with tongues more specifically and in excruciating detail when we get to chapter 14, but there's a couple of things that need to be said here as we begin to understand what Paul means by the supremacy of love. Tongues, 
The word you see here is always translated from the Greek word glossa, which always means language. In every instance in the New Testament where you see the word tongue, it is a reference to language. The most obvious meaning is found in in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost when the Christians were in the upper room praying and God poured out the Holy Spirit on that believing community. And here's what is recorded for us in the book of Acts, beginning in verse in chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout friends, excuse me, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Now, the day of Pentecost brought Jewish people from all over the known world. All of these Jews spoke different native languages. And on the day of Pentecost, Paul gifted the believers with the ability to speak a language that was not their native language so that the great accomplishment, gift, work of God could be explained to them in a language that they would understand. Now, if I stood before you today and I was a native South American and you didn't understand Spanish, it would do you absolutely no good to hear me eloquently speak the great truths of God in a language that you couldn't understand. It would make no sense to you. And it would be, well, I guess that's important. I guess it's interesting, but I don't understand anything you're saying. So God gifted these individuals to speak the truth about God in a language not their own, the gift of a tongue, so that they could hear the mighty works of God. So clearly, in this example, tongues refers to known languages. Now, what makes this somewhat difficult and confusing is Paul says that if I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, perhaps meaning every known language, what an incredible feat that would be. People who can speak multiple languages are typically considered to be very smart. Don't you think that way? I do. Somebody that can speak Greek and and Russian and English and Italian, I think, man, that person must be pretty smart. And those who can only speak a singular language, well, I don't know. Maybe not as smart as the guy or the gal who can speak multiple languages. So Paul says that if I can speak plural with the tongues of men and of angels, indicating that there is a language of angels, Paul is saying, that's really something, right? If I can speak with every known language of man, and I can also speak with the language of angels, well, we need to pause here, because Paul saying that 
does not mean Paul is affirming that there is a special angelic language. In fact, there is absolutely zero biblical teaching of a unique or special angelic language or dialect of the angels. In fact, there are some ideas of angelic language outside of the Bible and various religious traditions and in many pagan religions, but there is nothing in the Bible. What we find in the Bible are countless accounts of angels coming to earth and speaking to men and speaking in a language that they themselves could understand. When Gabriel came and spoke to Mary, he wasn't speaking gibberish, and she wasn't sitting there saying, uh, who are you and what are you saying and what does this mean? She heard him in a language that she could understand. Every instance of an angelic being coming into the earth speaks a language known to man. In fact, all the way back in the book of Isaiah, when he enters into the, te- into the temple and he sees the train of the robe of the temple of God, uh, excuse me, sees the train of the robe of God in the temple, he says, woe is me. And the seraphim and the, and the, uh, the cherubim and the seraphim show up and what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. Right? Is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah didn't say, who are you? What does this mean? I don't understand such a thing. He understood exactly what they are saying. So there's no indication that angels have a a heavenly language that could be learned by men or that there is an angelic language that is unknown to man. Angels always appear and speak in a language that men in their own language understand. Now, as a backdrop... To what Paul is saying here, it would do us well to remember what we talked about several weeks ago. Remember that the the Corinthians came from a very pagan, idolatrous, pluralistic religious society. It was saturated with the mystery religions. And in these mystery religions, there was an emphasis on what was called ecstatic utterances. Ecstatic utterances or these ecstatic experiences were thought to be achieved through frenzied hypnotic chants and ceremonies where worshipers experienced semi-conscious euphoric feelings of oneness with a god or a goddess. They would meditate on sacred objects. There would be whirling dances, what we would get from whirling dervishes. There would be fragrant incenses, chants, and other physical and psychological stimuli customarily being used to induce this feeling of ecstasy, which would be in the form of an out-of-body trance. This is what they desired. This is what they gave themselves to. And this is what many believed was the ultimate pagan religious experience, whether it was imagined or whether it was real due to some kind of demonic activity. Going back to what Paul talked about 
It includes sacrifice to idols. Paul says the food is meaningless. The idol itself is, is meaningless. There's nothing behind that. In fact, instead of an idol, there is actually some kind of a demonic force. So there is the very real likelihood that through these religious ecstatic experiences, there may have been the presence of a demonic being that would actually bring about this ecstatic out-of-body experience. And it was likely that the Corinthians carried this religious practice into their church with them. And for them, this gift of tongues or this ecstatic utterance indicated the highest spiritual experience because in this, you would be able to communicate a language that a god or a goddess could actually understand. So they believed that they could speak to these gods or goddesses through this ecstatic speech, brought on through this ecstatic experience, and this would be the basis for them believing that they had a superior spiritual standing than someone who did not possess the gift of tongues. So it is very likely that what Paul is doing here in this exaggerated example is he is using hyperbole to say that if I could speak with every known language of man and even in the language of angels, if such a language existed... Paul's not necessarily saying there is a language of angels, but if he could speak with all these languages, Paul says, and this is the point, without love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Think about this. In my experience, gongs and cymbals produce some of the most shrill and unpleasant sounds of any musical instrument. I, they're, they're, I mean, think about it. Have you ever been too close to somebody slamming together two cymbals? It just jumps you out of your bones. I mean, you're like, what is that? I don't like that sound. Stop doing that. Paul says, if I could speak with every known language of men, and if I could speak with the tongues of angels, if such a language existed, if I were to do so without love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. There's no value to that at all. To have those abilities without it being done in the context of love, it's just simply noise. So this is the context that Paul is beginning to explain, highlighting the, the, the supremacy of love over their most prized gift, and that was this ecstatic utterance or tongues. Letter B, the supremacy of love over prophecy, mysteries, and knowledge. I really wanted to treat these singularly in a singular word, but it's really impossible to do that because these words kind of mean something different even though they're couched together. So in another highly exaggerated example, Paul says in the beginning of in verse 2b, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. So that's part one that he's talking about here in this exaggerated example. So in a unique way, what Paul is doing is he's using a combination of the speaking gifts, prophecy, wisdom, and knowledge, and he's included in that all mysteries. Combining these things together... He's explaining the supremacy of love over these things. Not that these things are meaningless, but Paul considered prophecy to be the most important gift 
because it proclaimed the truth of God. He will say at the end of this, in chapter 14, verse 1, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Prophecy and knowledge together are also favorites of the Corinthians. So look at how Paul describes this exaggerated example. The gift of prophecy combined with all mysteries and all knowledge. Now remember, prophecy in the first century probably had a dual role. Prophecy is the teaching of what God has revealed, but prophecy is also the revelation to individuals, those truths about God, which were not yet known. We'll look at that in a little more detail in just a second. So mysteries refer to special divine understanding. Those things which God knows, which was not previously known, and has been revealed through a prophet. Prophets always speak for God, and the explanation of what God has said is sometimes revelatory, because God has never said that before. Sometimes it's teaching, because God has revealed it to an individual to explain something that was not previously known. This is what Paul explains, again, to the church at Ephesus in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, those visions that God had given to Paul, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So knowledge means the truths about God that come through the revelation of these mysteries through the prophets, and these become the content of what is actually taught. What we read in our Bible today is the previously unknown mystery of Christ prophesied by the apostles and the basis of our knowledge of God. Now, what was revealed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the apostles was not yet previously known, and what was revealed through these men become the basis of what we know to be true about God. If someone professes that there is a truth about God that cannot be validated in the teaching of Scripture, we must reject that truth. Why? Because God has revealed Himself through the pages of Scripture, through prophetic, revelatory mysteries, which become the basis of our knowledge, the content of our knowledge of who God is. So think about it this way. If one could know everything about God's revelation, if someone could know all spiritual mysteries, and if someone could know all spiritual truth, this would be quite an impressive feat, would it not? Now, I've known some people who thought this was true of themselves. They parade themselves to be the know-it-all of all things God, all things spiritual, all things that relate to truth. Paul says, if someone 
could know these things, and clearly there is no person who can know such things, it would be absolutely amazing that one could possess such knowledge. Clearly, Paul is a prophet without rival. He is the recipient of unparalleled mysteries and the repository for tremendous spiritual truth But Paul would acknowledge that he is far from complete as he will tell them later in this chapter in verses 9 through 11, excuse me, 9 through 12, 9 through 13, 12, excuse me, for now, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So Paul says that if someone could possess all revelatory information, all prophecy, all mystery, contain all knowledge, that would be absolutely amazing. But in addition to that, if someone could have all faith, continuing in verse 2, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Faith is another highly prized Christian attribute, but it's not just any faith, it's faith that can remove a mountain. Think about that. If you drive on Highway 76, one of those mysteriously federally funded toll roads, which I just still don't understand, our taxpayers pay for that road and we pay to drive on that road, you will undoubtedly travel through a lengthy and an incredibly large tunnel, right? There's a huge mountain over the road. Think about those mountains that you drive under, having the faith to be able to level that mountain. Think about that. Paul is picking up on something that Jesus taught in his earthly ministry when he had sent out the disciples and they couldn't cast out a particular demon and they came back to him and said, why couldn't we cast out that demon? He says in Matthew chapter 17, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now again, hyperbole, Jesus is not teaching the little moving of a mountain, but what Jesus is teaching is how our God can do mighty things for His children, as and as impossible as it might seem for us to have God move a mountain, in a similar way God will do impossible things as we come together to serve Him, because we together are His church, and the children of God. Now, it's likely that Paul is picking up on this teaching, and I think you and I would probably agree that Paul is the most faith-filled Person in the entirety of the New Testament, thinking about this, that Paul took 
four separate missionary journeys that took place over a period of more than 20 years and did so with no, with little to no financial backing, endured incredible hardship, and would go to jail, and would be beaten, and would be hungry, and basically said, I will die for the gospel. Incredible faith that Paul possessed. So Paul picks up on this faith-filled person, which greatly overshadows his own expression of faith, And we see this hypothetical description of this person that Paul has just described. The gift of prophecy knows all spiritual mysteries, possesses all spiritual knowledge of God, can literally remove a mountain. And Paul says, you can have all of that, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. Do you think the Corinthian would agree with such a hypothetical example? Would anyone today agree with such a hypothetical example? Would you? Would you say that if I could possess all of these things and didn't have the fullest measure of agape love, I am nothing? That's exactly what God says. Paul has taken the things most highly prized in the Greek culture and says, you can know all this and you can do all this, but apart from the context of love, zero. You are nothing. Paul lastly talks about the supremacy of love over letter D, self-sacrifice. Paul's been speaking to the overconfident, self-righteous Corinthian Christian. And perhaps now he turns to those without these prized spiritual gifts who have succumbed to the feelings of inferiority. And while they may not possess great spiritual gifts, they could still stand out spiritually in another way. Self-sacrifice. So again, in another highly exaggerated description, we read in verse 3, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Think about that. All my possessions. Most give something. Few give sacrificially. But does anyone ever give absolutely everything to help others? In this day and age, not so much like in America, but in in most other parts of the world, hunger has been a problem throughout all of human history. And giving to help the hungry is a noble and a worthwhile cause. But giving everything you own to that cause... Has there ever been such a man? I was curious. I looked this up. Here's what I found. (laughs) There's a man by the name of Chuck Feeney. You may probably never heard of Chuck Feeney. Chuck Feeney made billions, with a B, billions of dollars selling duty-free items in airports all over the country. 
catering to tourists and others who could buy these goods and not pay sales tax on them. And in his life, Chuck made billions. He vowed to die a poor man. And in his life, it is estimated by his own account and by the records of charitable organizations that Chuck Feeney gave away in excess of $8 billion to these worthwhile causes. And if you continue to read through this biography of Chuck Feeney, there's this little sentence that says that Chuck kept $2 million for his retirement. He gave billions, but he didn't give it all. Could we ever really give it all? I don't think that we could. We could say, Chuck, you're an incredible man. You are the epitome of a philanthropist. If you were to add to this great work of philanthropy, all of the preceding examples that Paul has given, great faith, knowledge of mysteries, All spiritual truth. Without love, you are absolutely nothing. Even if one did give away every cent to help others, in the most extreme example of self-sacrifice, Paul says, even if one would offer his body to be burned. Now, why would Paul say such a thing? Well, some believe that this self-sacrifice garners to them special favor with God. All throughout history in the church, there have been certain groups and movements that have believed that self-denial, self-humiliation, even self-affliction brings some kind of spiritual favor before God. Apart from church history, there are numerous cults and pagan religions that place great emphasis on giving up of possessions, sacrifices of various sorts, and on religious acts of self-deprivation, self-affliction, and even monasticism in order to garner special favor by God. Paul says any self-sacrifice, even offering your life to be burned Profits nothing without love. So without love, the Christian produces nothing, the Christian is nothing, and the Christian gains nothing. Now, I've got to be honest with you, on face value, I find that hard to believe. How can such a thing be true? But it's exactly what God says. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what we understand. It doesn't matter what we believe. God has established that agape love as displayed to humanity through Christ on the cross is the standard by which our relationships are to be governed by and most especially the execution of spiritual gift within His church, of which He is the head. So far more than just a chapter that will describe the great qualities of agape love, this chapter sets the standard for how we are to use our spiritual gifts, how how these gifts are to be related to one another in the usage 
of these spiritual gifts in unity for the building up of the body to the glory of God. So whatever gift you have, as prideful as we may be in that gift, or as insignificant as you feel your gift might be, how you execute that gift is more important than the gift itself. And that gift is to be executed in the context of love. Let's pray together.